Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest today is Vikram Chandra. He's an award-winning author, two novels and a collection of short stories, and he's been a computer programmer for almost as long as he's been a writer. In his new book, Geek Sublime, The Beauty of Code, The Code of Beauty, he looks at the connection between these two worlds of art and technology. Coders are obsessed with elegance and style, just as writers are, but do the words mean the same thing to both? And is it a coincidence that Chandra is drawn to two seemingly opposing ways of thinking? Exploring these questions, he has created a book that's part technology story, part memoir, exploring such topics as logic gates and literary modernism, the male machismo of geeks, the striking presence of an Indian mafia in Silicon Valley, the surprising connection between modern programming languages and the grammar of the ancient Sanskrit language, the exciting and terrifying world of synthetic biology, and yogic ideals about the nature of art and the self. And Vikram Chandra is uh, author, as I mentioned, of uh, works of fiction, highly acclaimed, most recently Sacred Games, which won the Hutch Crossword Award for Fiction in 2006. He lives in Oakland, teaches at the University of California, Berkeley. Vikram Chandra, pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Pleasure to be here. Uh, glad to uh, glad you've uh, joined us. Very interesting, uh, especially. Well, I, I learned a lot of things in this this book. I'd like to start, however, with some of your uh, autobiography, your your uh, your upbringing. Eldest of three children, understand. Yes. Born in New Delhi. Yes. Uh, your father, retired executive. Your mother, interestingly, a writer and uh, was author of many films and plays in in Hindi. Yes. Yes. Uh, she was. She was uh, well known. Uh, member of what is uh, globally known as Bollywood, and she's written a um, few very famous Bollywood films, uh, yeah, uh, and yeah. she's still writing them. Oh, she is. She is. Um, yeah. But uh, as, and I'm reading an interview that you did with, the, I think, the, the paper there at Cal Berkeley, um, she was concerned that her children uh, should make a living. I guess all parents are concerned about that, and and uh, she she took great pains to tell you writing may not be a way to to actually make a living yes yeah no and i actually saw that in very practical terms uh, when when we were growing up we lived in delhi and at that time she was writing for plays for uh radio and uh, the state control radio um Durdarshan. and so i saw the paychecks that she got uh for you know an hour-long play she would get a check for 150 rupees which would be i, I mean it's in practical terms, it's three dollars now. It was probably a lot more then, but there was no way you could make a living off it. So there were books in the house. We used to see her writing all the time, and all of us kids started making up stories when we were kids. But it was clear that you were never going to make a living from doing this thing. But you were an avid reader. Uh, in fact, it, uh, the, you're quoted as saying that you would you would spend vacations reading, you know, tire of vacation reading. Yes, exactly. Yeah, uh, I was addicted to reading. I guess that would be one way of putting it. Uh, the kind of really great day would for me would be if I had three or four novels to read of various kinds—a thriller, uh, you know, some kind of suspense novel—and uh, and if I could spend the whole day, um, even while eating, reading, uh, which was frowned upon in our family, but I did it anyway. Uh, and I think that finally um, also fed very much into the urge to write fiction myself, um, to try and do what I enjoyed so much. So you, you wanted, I guess, to do for for other readers what you were experiencing from, from these great writers, I guess. Exactly. And, and exactly, what, yeah. what yeah, was I that? Mean, a, a, a different experience, a different view of the world? What, 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 did, what do you want to do in, with your writing? Well, I think... Uh, for me, um, what I enjoy most about fiction is the entry into um, another world, so that so much so that, that the outside world starts to look kind of ephemeral and unreal. Um, so that, you know, that kind of deep dive feeling you get when you spend half a day in a book and you come up and the real world looks strange. And I think um, that it's it's an entirely pleasurable feeling and the paradox of course is that you can be reading about terrible things right people doing really bad things to each other create wars uh, and so forth but what you experience it as as a kind of um uh, heightened aesthetic pleasure um and um the the pre-modern indian literary theorists were very interested in this so why is it that we can read about terrible stuff and 
yet experience it as a kind of heightened aesthetic <clears throat> state of being. Um, and so they came up with very many interesting answers, but I think uh, it's also transformative. Um, if you spend enough time in a particular book, um, you come out at the other end a different person. Um, and in fact, uh, the great Indian epic, the Mahabharata, explicitly warns you about this at the beginning. It says, if you read this book, you will not be the same when, you've done, when you're done. You will be somebody different. Um, and I think that's one of also one of the great powers of literature is that it can um, not just entertain you, but also change you in some very profound way. The transformation, that's interesting. I'm reading from a, a review of your book, current book from The Observer in the U.K., um, and they, they talk about um, this book being a crash course in coding and uh, an ode to language as well. Then the writer goes on to say, above all, this it's an eloquent tribute to text and its ability to shape our emotions and rewrite the very world we live in. Yes. And I yeah, suppose exactly. that... And I think um, that's... Sorry, go ahead. I, I suppose that applies to the both the things you're you're talking about here right uh the you know computer right. code and and the literature right right so it, 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 computer code also um in some obvious but sometimes very subtle ways it completely transforms the world that we experience and how we experience ourselves and i think we've all been witness to this over the last couple of decades in that um, we are all now um, using Facebook and Google, but uh, Facebook and Google are also using us, right? And and how we look at the world and experience ourselves is now shaped as much by these devices um, and these programs as, as much as we think that we are seeing the world transparently through them. And this can operate in... in um, so very, very obviously nasty ways, like you know, every time you get online, you're leaving a trail behind yourself of what you've looked at, um, uh, what you've bought, and corporations are busily exchanging this data and bring, building up little profiles of you, and then presenting you with the world through websites and so forth that is shaped, that is um, very cynically built to feed into the consumerism that that they want to encourage in you. So, uh, but I think also um, there's a sense in which uh, how we behave with ourselves now that we're all carrying little supercomputers into our pockets and consulting them at every turn, our sense of self itself is being transformed. Um, and I experienced this very acutely with, uh, I teach. And so, you know, one of the interesting things about teaching is that you keep getting older, but the students stay the same age. Uh, and you keep experiencing um, a distance between, for instance, their sense of privacy and mine. Um, they're so uh, differently constructed, and their notions of what remains private and what should be out in public is completely alien to me. And, and I'm not saying that in a critical way. I'm just saying observing that as a fact. And I think the reason is, of course, that they're growing up in a world that's very different from mine, as much as mine was different from the one that my father grew up in in India in the 30s and 40s. And the change itself seems to be accelerating. Uh, that itself yes. can be scary. Yes, very much so. I, I think uh, if you think about it, uh, I mean, I remember uh, when I first actually encountered a computer, and this was in the United States in the early 80s, it was a mainframe. It was this huge thing that filled the room, and you had access to it at a distance. Uh, the most powerful machine in the world at that time was the Cray 2, which was called, then called a supercomputer. And your smartphone that you carry in your pocket now is more powerful than that supercomputer. Um, and I think we are uh, very much closer to that sort of science fiction world of um, actually wearing computers in our clothes, of interfacing in our bodies in computers. So Google Glass, I think, is just the first step. Uh, and when, we, when you read science fiction in which people um, are connected physically into cyberspace, it feels comfortably far forward, right? You think, oh, you know, 100 years from now is when this is going to happen. Uh, I think it's going to happen a lot sooner than that. 
Uh, if you had told me in 1984 that I would be carrying a crate two in my pocket and so would farmers in rural India, I would have thought you were insane. I would have said, no, you're, you're crazy. But it, it did happen. I wonder if you could follow up on the, this idea of privacy and the, 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 your students' idea of, uh, and feeling of privacy is much different from your own. Um, it, it, it seems to me... Uh, you can say if you agree or disagree, that we're becoming more and more interconnected and yet at the same time not connected um, in the ways that we used right. to be. And uh, I don't know, there's, it right. seems to be something lost there, but, but there's, there's much gained as well. Right. Well, I think, I mean, and this is, I suppose, a kind of trite observation, and many people have talked about this, that, that in some ways we're all experiencing ourselves um, um, sh- online, as it were, right? So, so uh, you know, if there's a disaster happening in front of us, the first thing we want to do is to get the phone out and take some video of it. Uh, and then you put that online. And even other stuff like, you know, this is what I, this is the music that I listened to today. This is uh, what I ate today. And you put a little picture of it on Instagram. Um, so it's as if the public performance of ourselves is happening in front of other people and we're constructing that public self and then the private self which is you when you're alone um, is not necessarily sitting around with your family talking to each other Uh, it's you hanging around by yourself um, looking at television reading a blog and so there's this simultaneous sense of ease of connection and then also distance Uh, and I you know I appreciate very much the ability for me to be able to suddenly be able to be chatting with my 10th grade classmates from India who I haven't spoken to for, you know, 20 years and being able to set up a reunion this winter, uh, it's amazing. Um, And yet at the same time, it's very easy to get isolated. It's very easy to retreat uh, inward and, and, um, and I'm sure you've noticed this, you know, you're on the bus with a bunch of, uh, people who are obviously friends and they're all looking down busily at their phones um, typing. Uh, and I know people who are in the same house and, and my wife and I have done this. Um, I'll be on one side of the house and she'll be on the other and she'll send me a text message. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, something. The group. we've all been there, yeah. Yeah, so it's, very, it's, a, it's a very strange new world that we're living in and it's changing us, I think, in profound ways that we don't quite understand yet. Mm. That, that you know, sort of takes me back to the experience of reading a book. Um, it's, you're alone, um, but you're definitely connected to the world that the author set up. Uh, and, you know, as far as your imagination can go, but, but the act of reading, perhaps the act of writing as well is, is a, you know, singular activity. Right. Right. I I suppose, yeah. And I, I don't want to romanticize, you know, the old world too much. I think, uh, and especially, um, coming from, um, from India and the India that I grew up in, um, the sense of being connected in a physical space was so overwhelming. I mean, you know, your, your family is with you all the time, and especially back then, you lived within a very tightly connected community, which you felt was watching you all the time. So, I mean, m- many of us who wanted to come out to the West, our dream was actually to get away from that, you know, <laughs> because the burden of of connectivity can also become something that oppresses the self as well. Mm. We're talking with Vikram Chandra, if you've just joined us. He's the author of three highly acclaimed works of fiction, most recently Sacred Games, and he lives in Oakland, teaches at the University of uh, California, Berkeley. His newest book is uh, part autobiography, part history of code, um, and there's much else going on. It's called Geek Sublime, The Beauty of Code, The Code of Beauty. And you're welcome to join this conversation if you would like. Vikram Chandra, almost as long as he's been a writer, he's uh, been a a programmer. Um, And he's uh, looking at these uh, two perhaps disparate worlds. There are a lot of parallels. And uh, coders are obsessed, he says, with elegance and style, just as writers are. But do those words mean the same thing to both? We'll get into talking about some very interesting things he has in the book, including uh, male machismo of geeks, the presence of an Indian mafia in Silicon Valley, Surprising connection between modern programming languages and the grammar of the ancient Sanskrit language. And what Bikram Chandra calls the exciting and terrifying world of synthetic biology. 
Uh, you're welcome to join the conversation if you would like. Love to have you uh, participate. 1-800-826-1495 is the number. 1-800-826-1495. Or you can reach us by email. Upraxcess at gmail.com. Upraxcess at gmail.com. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Shakespeare Festival, presenting Sherlock Holmes, The Final Adventure, where murder is elementary. Information at bard.org. This Thursday on the Zesty Garden, USU Extension Vegetable Specialist Dan Drost is in studio. Among other topics, we'll look at how the cooler evenings may increase the flavor of your vegetables. And now is a great time to plant a crop of greens for fall eating. Also, if you want the best garlic next summer, now is the time to plant. Then we'll finish with Helen Cannon on Petals and Pros. That's this Thursday morning at 10 o'clock on the Zesty Garden from Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Utah Public Radio and Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest is Vikram Chandra. He is the award-winning author of uh, several books, the latest of which is Sacred Games, which won the Hutch Crossword uh, Award for Fiction in 2006. He lives in Oakland, teaches at the University of California, Berkeley. Almost as long as he's been a writer, he's been a uh, computer programmer. And uh, in this book... We're talking about now Geek Sublime, the beauty of code, code of beauty. looks at the connection between these two worlds of art and technology. And uh, Vikram Chandra, I uh, was very interested to learn. I learned many things in the book. Uh, One of uh, the things is uh, the fact that some computer programmers um, don't actually understand how computers work. That would seem obvious. (laughs) Do you understand how a computer works? Uh, I wonder if you could tell us yeah. how how that could come to be. In fact, you have in the book this sort of plaintive cry. I don't know where you found this. A Rob P., right. who has an advanced degree in right. computer science, and he uh, he types out boldface, but I don't know how computers work. Yes. Well, uh, I, the, the history of computers uh, has been interesting in that the first machines that were built in the 30s and 40s um, you built the logic into the machine. Um, in other words, the hardware was the logic, and that, and so if you wanted to solve a particular problem, you built one machine to do that, and then if you needed to solve another problem, you had to rewire the entire machine. So the people who were doing that really had to understand binary code. They had to understand Boolean logic. They had to understand exactly what they were doing. Um, but this was obviously not a very satisfactory solution because you, you're presented with you know different problems every day and you want one computer that you can tell, I need to do this algorithm today and here it is and here's the data structure and go ahead and do, run this for me, run this computation for me. So the big effort um, right from the start, but especially in the 40s, was to make a programmable computer. In other words, one machine that would understand a whole set of various instructions designed to solve different problems. And one of the first machines that could do that was called the ENIAC. Uh, it was an American machine that was put into operation in 1945. And it was programmable in the sense that you could tell it to do different things. But even there, um, it, it, you can find pictures of this on the web, and I have pictures in the book. It looks like this huge, um, old-fashioned a telephone patch cord panel, right? So you get this en- this enormous thing with lots of little holes in it, and the way that you programmed it was that you attached patch cords from one hole to the other, and then there were these banks of electronic switches, and you flipped them, and that's how you built the program that you were going to execute. So the next step after that was to try and use actual language. Um, in other words, be able to type up um, or put on, represent on punch cards, zeros and ones, uh, machine code that the computer would understand. Um, and so there's been a slow progress um, in kind of abstracting away the actual physical machinery and moving more and more towards human language. And so the next step was something called assembly code, which is kind of um, mnemonics, um, mixed in with machine language, and the first actual programming languages, as most people today would understand the phrase, were um, built in the late 50s. Um, the first one probably being Fortran, 
which was short for formula translation. And um, now you could say things like um, print screen and uh, print screen Vikram, and it would actually pop up Vikram on the screen. So this level of abstraction, finally, when you were able to just type in words and then have the computer execute logic on the basis of that was the great jump, I think. So by the time that I started learning computers, what you had to do was to really understand the logic of this, uh, of, of this very specially constructed um, and abstracted language. I really don't have to understand, if you want to program today, you don't have to understand a thing about logic gates. Right? You can just type in, um, add five to six, and it'll do, do it for you. So the result is that you can actually have an absolutely um, grand time programming the computer without knowing how the mechanisms work. Um, and uh, in, in huge ways, this is an advance because it's also a much more efficient and, and um, uh, economical way of programming. I can work on part of a program, and then two days later, you can come and look at what I've written. And because it's in a common language to both of us, you can read it and then change it, add to it. But it also means that many of us today, and I certainly was one of them all the way through uh, the time that I was actually making money um, doing this, I had no idea how it actually did anything under the surface, as it were. Hmm. And it was only when I stopped doing it professionally, it occurred to me, you know, I don't really know what I'm doing. And so then I had to go and do a whole series of investigations to see how... Uh, my English-like language was first translated into an intermediate language, which was then translated into machine code, which then went down to um, the logic gates as binary code. Um, so I suppose you know you don't really have to understand exactly how a car works to drive it, but um, the race car drivers have a really great phrase for why you should. They call it mechanical sympathy. So the idea being that if you're a really, really good race driver um, and you understand the machinery of your car, you will have a mechanical sympathy with it that will enable you to uh, make it do things that you could not otherwise. Mm. Um, so there's still, I think, a value in being able to have an in-depth knowledge of what the logic you're driving is actually doing. You say in the book, I'll just quote you here this paragraph, computers have not really changed radically in terms of their underlying architecture over the last half century. What we think of as advancement or progress is really a slowing, slowly growing ease of human use. Uh, I guess this is language over language over language, all making it easier and easier for the end user, me and you, to, to, to use it. Exactly, exactly. And, and um, the fact that there's so many layers and there's so much going on under the surface is, in a sense, hidden from us because um, of the exponentially growing power of the hardware. I mean, like I was saying, you know, uh, the, the, we are carrying around things that are supercomputers in our pockets. And so all of those translations, all of those millions of instructions happen now in a flash of an eye. If you tried to do the same thing on a 1984 vintage computer, it would not work. So it's just um, the power of what we have at our fingertips now um, and the in in astonishing, astonishing decrease in the size of it right, uh, is, is what makes all of this possible. Now, you say many programmers regard themselves as artists, and you quote to Paul Graham. Uh, programmer, venture capitalist. He said, of all the different types of people I've known, hackers and painters are among the most alike. <laughs> yes. Right. So uh, I think for a lot of people, the idea that, that programmers care about elegance and beauty might seem really foreign. Uh, but there's actually a very uh, simple and straightforward reason for this, um, which is that you're not really writing uh, programming code for the machine. Um, the fact that it passes, you're passing instructions to the to the CPU is almost incidental. Um, you're writing your code for other programmers who will have to look at your code in the future, understand it, and adapt it, and change it, and fix bugs. So because of this, um, clarity, expressiveness, um, a kind of architectural coherence, are absolutely at a premium. Um, and, and if you don't, if you're not careful about this, you can end up with a mess, a, a mess that is so 
entangled that nobody will understand how it actually works. I mean, I can write code today and then come back three months later and look at it and have no idea what it's doing. Um, so, so what you have to do is to be very, very eloquent um, to build. You're kind of telling a story about what you're trying to have the computer do as you go down the page. And um, it's also important to note that some code sticks around for an incredibly, incredibly long time. Um, one of the oldest uh, computer languages in the world today is called is COBOL, uh, which was um, created by the pioneering Admiral Grace Hopper um, in the early 50s. And today, COBOL, uh, it, it was put into operation in 1959, and today it still processes 90% of the planet's financial transactions and 75% of all business data. <laughs> you can actually make a fairly good living by being a COBOL programmer today. But in terms of historical time, in accelerated computing terms, that's sort of like working in some Mesopotamian language. You know, it's it's ancient. So um, often, what happens is that that you begin with all these good intentions of writing really clear, um, elegant, beautiful code that is easy to take apart, that it's easy to put back together and change. But you're working under the pressure of time. The venture capitalists are breathing down your neck, um, and you slap together something, and then you slap together something else on the top of it, and you end up with an absolute mess that is so incomprehensible that nobody can fix it. And uh, I'm actually, I mean, I should give you a, a very uh, kind of disconcerting example. Um, so the 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 uh, the program used by the U.S. Pentagon to pay their soldiers, uh, to pay employees, um, is known to make widespread errors in paying soldiers' salaries. Um, and this is for pay payroll and accounting, that is. Uh, and it's very hard to actually get them to rectify these mistakes that they make. And But the problem is that um, the program they're using um, is impossible to fix. Uh, it's about uh, 7 million lines of COBOL code, mostly written in the 1960s. And somewhere along the way, the documentation disappeared. And there's a report in which one of a uh, retired employee is quoted as saying, it's hard to make a change to a program if you don't know what's in there. Right? And yeah. <laughs> if you're a programmer who's tasked with fixing one of these, these big balls of mud, as they're known, it's quite terrifying. Because you're trying to go in there, and it's trying to kind of uh, like interpreting hieroglyphics, and you're in the middle of this tangle, and you don't know if you touch this part here, will it blow up something else on the other side over there? So the solution that occurs, of course, to everyone is why not just scrap the whole thing and start again, right? Write a much better, more beautiful program from the ground up. The trouble with doing that is that you can spend then hundreds of millions of dollars on replacing those seven million lines of code, and you're still not sure that at the end of five years, after all those hundred millions of dollars, it'll you'll get something that's operational. So often the institutional solution to this is, well, let's just leave the thing that is in place running, and we'll work around it. If you've just joined us, we're talking with Vikram Chandra. He is uh, author of uh, several uh, uh, highly acclaimed works of uh, fiction, most recently Sacred Games. And uh, he's uh, written a new book. It's part autobiography, part history of code. Um, along with being a writer, Vikram Chandra has been a, uh, program, uh, a computer programmer, written a lot of code in his life, and he meditates on the interconnections between science and art, uh, code and writing, um, and uh, gets into a lot of other interesting things uh, in the book, including, we're, we're going to get into later in the program, the surprising connection between modern programming languages and the grammar of the ancient Sanskrit language, and uh, the exciting and terrifying world, those are the two uh, adjectives used uh, by Vikram Chandra, the world of synthetic biology, and much else. Um, you're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or uh, 
or you can join us at uh, upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Here's an email from Steve in Beaverdam, Arizona. Steve says, because there's an electrician in the house trying to fix the electrical wiring, I've not been giving Axis Utah my full attention this morning, but when you mentioned sacred games, my attention instantly focused, and I went to my bookshelf to be sure I'd not misheard. Sure enough, it's the same sacred games. You're interviewing the author of one of my favorite novels. I had no idea he was a computer programmer, too. Here's hoping that the electric power comes back up in time for me to send this reader's appreciation to Axis Utah. That's uh, Steve, so a fan of, fan of your works there, uh, Vikram Chandra. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Steve. I'm glad you enjoyed the book. And uh, probably a lot of people have read Sacred Games. Your other works uh, were not aware that you were a computer programmer. A lot of writers have this in their background. They, they you know, do something else to pay the bills, at least for a while. Yes. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I, I should say, I, I get a little, when when uh, you're saying I'm a computer programmer, I, I should be clear that, you know, I wasn't solving any hugely difficult problems. I wasn't one of those uh, sort of people that you see in the movies hacking something. I, I was doing really journeyman uh, I was making little database systems for local businesses. They were keeping track of whatever widget they were selling. And uh, I was providing value for money, and, and it paid my way through grad school and paid for my research and work. Uh, but I sometimes get a sort of imposter syndrome. You know, I, when, when mm-hmm. uh, people say you were a computer programmer, well, I was one, I was kind of a computer programmer uh, who, who, and I've maintained a kind of obsessive hobbyist interest ever since, um, and not least because I enjoy, still enjoy doing it as an amateur, but also it's so profoundly affecting our everyday lives that I think for me it's also fictionally and culturally very interesting to think about uh, what it's doing to us and how we are using these things and are being used by them in turn. Well, does uh, your experience in, in coding, does that inform your writing? I'm sure it does. I, I mean, I think, for instance, um, Sacred Games is a big novel about organized crime and policing and corruption in India. Um, and so one of the structural things that I found myself doing in it was uh, trying to explore how people very widely separated from each other in by time and by geography um, affected each other's lives. And so the structure of the novel finally came out looking like uh, a kind of giant network in which um, effects flow from one side of the network to the other in ways that are unpredictable and are untraceable to the people who are affected by them. And I'm sure that my vision of the world in terms of um, understanding the way that uh, a lot of our network systems and our network world is working together fed into the construction of that architecture for the book. We're going to take another break. When we come back, I uh, want to get into this uh, just fascinating parallel uh, between Sanskrit, which is an ancient language, and in fact it's uh, its formal grammar is even is uh, 500 uh, B.C., so when, when that dates to, uh, and parallels to modern programming languages. Also, uh, this idea of um, a cult of machismo, at, uh, sort of a macho culture in programming, that was not always the way it was. In fact, the early advances in uh, computer programming were made by women. We'll get into uh, why that has changed and uh, whether that is... Uh, just in the U.S. or worldwide, and uh, much else following break. We're talking with uh, Vikram Chandra, author of uh, Sacred Games and other books. His newest book is called Geek Sublime, The Beauty of Code, The Code of Beauty. Uh, it's out uh, from Grey Wolf Press. And uh, you can join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495 or at upraxis at gmail.com. Hi, this is Bill McLaughlin inviting you to come explore the world of the English composer William Walton. Young Willie had a beautiful soprano voice as a boy, and that won him a scholarship to Oxford. Walton wrote concerti for Heifetz and Piatigorsky, film scores for Laurence Olivier and John Gilgut, and music for the royal family. So come explore the world of William Walton this week on Exploring Music. Weekday afternoons at 1 and Monday through Thursday, 9 at 9 on Utah Public Radio. 
Did you know that less than one-third of Americans hold at least a bachelor's degree? But at least 30% of adults in 16 states, mostly on the coasts, have earned a bachelor's degree or higher? The three interior states among those 16 are Illinois, Minnesota, and Utah. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread in Logan. Open Monday through Friday until 3 p.m. A wholesale retail company dedicated to crafting a selection of artisan breads and pastries using old world techniques of preparation and baking. Information at crumbbrothers.com. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and glad you've joined me today. My guest is the acclaimed author Vikram Chandra. He's author of Sacred Games, uh, most recently. And his latest book is Geek Sublime. It's a work of nonfiction. It's a sort of a mix of autobiography. Vikram Chandra has uh, done computer programming uh, quite a bit to pay the bills. Uh, and, uh, of course, he's a writer, and he uh, meditates on the connections between those two seemingly disparate uh, um, avocations or vocations. Uh, Geek Sublime, The Beauty of Code, The Code of Beauty is the book. Uh, you're welcome to join us here at 1-800-826-1495, or you can uh, join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Vikram Chandra, you write uh, that um, in the early days of programming, women were heavily involved. In fact, uh, you mentioned uh, ENIAC, uh, one of the, the first uh, supercomputers, was programmed entirely by women. You also mention um, in in the book um, Lord Byron's daughter was a very early programmer. It's hard to think of it all the way back then. Uh, so women fe- featured um, very prominently, and yet it's become more or less a man's world. Right, right. It's it's a very interesting history. Um, so as you said, ENIAC was um, uh, the programming, the actual moving off the patch cords and the switching, uh, uh, clicking on and off of those banks of switches, which was how you actually put the program into the machine, that was all done by women. Um, and the the kind of social construction at the time was that um, the planners uh, or the scientists or the planners, as they were known, uh, were supposed to do the what was then thought of as the really hard work, which is to create the algorithms and the data structures to solve the problem that they were going to to that they were attacking and then they would hand off those plans to the coders who were seen to be doing as something a purely mechanical task something that was crafty or secretarial and so of course this reflected the then um explicit social structures that you know the, the executives were the men and the secretaries were women and the amazing thing, uh, it's kind of hard to comprehend at this distance, is that nobody then had yet realized how hard programming actually was. Um, that taking an algorithm and a set of data structures and changing it uh, or transforming it into a language that computers would understand is something that requires great intelligence and skill and creativity. So, um, uh, in, 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 uh, um, a lot of this is actually uh, treated in a very, very good history by a historian called Nathan Ensmenger, who wrote a lovely book called The Computer Boys Take Over. And he points out that even the physical, um, the physicality of the ENIAC reflected these social uh, constructions in that the, the patch cords made it look like you were being a secretary or a telephone operator taking instructions and then just connecting one executive to another, as it were, right? You were performing a secretarial function. So as the years went by in the 60s, when people started to realize that this was a heavily, heavily desirable skill, the profession then, or the, the what was then until then thought to be a craft uh, or, or a mechanical service was slowly transformed over the years into a profession. And as Anne Spanger points out, um, that the changing anything into a profession 
often involves adding masculinity to it, right? So as late as 1967, it was still possible to tell women that that this was a very woman-friendly job. Uh, in 1967, in a, an issue of Cosmopolitan magazine, uh, they, uh, um, they, they interviewed Admiral Grace Hopper, and uh, the Cosmo writer wrote, uh, yeah, every every uh, corporation needs programmers, and um, any girl can do it. And everyone's looking for employees. And Grace Hopper is quoted as saying, um, "It's just like fixing dinner. Um, you have to plan ahead. You have to have all the ingredients at hand, um, and then you put it all together. And and therefore, you should also to the Cosmo audience, you should all get into this." So in some sense, what happens is like what what happens when you take cooking and make it into a profession. Well, you call it, you know, you call the people who do it chefs, and the chefs, as in historical terms, have always been men, whereas women have always been doing the cooking at home, right? Which is seen to be uh, not professional. So according to Ensmenger, what happens is that um, the profession, by becoming a profession, gets masculinized, and um, also that it it gets this kind of machismo attached to it, which becomes part of the aura. And he also talks a lot about um, the tests that the corporations then start using to find programming talent. So uh, what they do is they give these very, very difficult logic and mathematical tests, and often these tests require formal tra- training in these disciplines. So the tests end up selecting men who are, at the time especially, the ones who are likely to have that sort of formal training, and this sets up a kind of feedback cycle so that it becomes increasingly seen as a male profession and then keeps on, you know, um, um, that cycle keeps on intensifying until we come down to our present day. Um, I should point out also that... that, um, this is a kind of not a universal construction. Um, and one of the interesting things that scholars have been paying a lot of attention to over the last couple of decades is um, computing in other parts of the world. And the part that I have particular knowledge of is in India. Um, and the interesting thing is here is this, that, that as um, I'm sure everybody listening knows, um, in terms of... Uh, uh, the happiness of women, India is not a particularly um, encouraging place in the current conditions. There was a 2012 survey um, called the Global Gender Gap Survey, which looks at women's access to education and security and health um, around the globe at various countries. And they looked at the United States, and they rated uh, the United States as 22nd out of the 135-odd countries surveyed, and India came in at an absolutely dismal 105. But uh, despite this, the proportion of programmers uh, who, in India who are women is higher than um, the proportion of programmers uh, in the U.S. who are women. So India is 30-odd percent, and it's it's increasing, and in the U.S. it's um, uh, 21%. 21%. Um, the amount of uh, peop- of women getting degrees in computer science has been steadily dropping in the United States since the 1980s. Um, I think it was a high of 34% then, and it's now 18%. And in India, it's been going absolutely in the other direction. Um, in some schools in India, it's now 50, 55% of the degrees being given in computer science are to women. And I think one of the reasons for this is that um, because of the particular um, historical constructions, uh, the way that computing was introduced into India and has grown in India, it isn't masculine in quite the same way. Um, It's seen as, in a sense, a perfect job for women because it's in an office uh, which is to say that it's in a safe place. Um, it is something that is mental. Um, it requires intelligence and not physical strength, and therefore women can do it as well as men. And um, so it's it's a very it, it's one of those industries in India that is um, uh, very very gender friendly as re- relative to other areas. If you just joined us, we're talking with Vikram Chandra. 
Uh, his new book is Geek Sublime, The Beauty of Code, The Code of Beauty. It's a work of nonfiction. It's uh, part uh, memoir and uh, part history of code, much else going on uh, in the book. Vikram Chandra, you, you may be familiar with him from his uh, highly acclaimed books. Maybe you've read uh, Sacred Games or uh, his other books and were unaware that he did uh, computer programming almost as long as he's uh, been a writer. And uh, he muses on uh, the intersections between those two seemingly disparate uh, fields. You're welcome to join the conversation here if you'd like at 1-800-826-1495. The email is upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Vikram Chandra, I'd, uh, I don't want to neglect what I found to be the most fascinating part of the book, and that's this uh, surprising connection between the grammar of the Sanskrit language, which is, what, over 2,500 years old, uh, and modern uh, programming. Um, so you say that uh, yeah. the, the grammar for the language was written about 500 B.C. It's not a grammar in the conventional sense. It's an algorithm comprising uh, some 4,000 rules which fit about 40 pages. Essentially, it's a machine. It produces Sanskrit yeah. words. Uh, yeah. tell, tell me about this. Right. It's a, it's a quite astonishing device. So um, uh, the f- earliest texts that are available to us in Sanskrit date back to about somewhere between 2000 and 1500 BCE. Um, and the earliest one is called the Rig Veda. These are revelation texts, um, uh, wisdom texts. Now, the interesting thing about them is that it's not just the sense of the Vedas that is important. In other words, uh, the meaning of the words is important, but the structure of the language itself down to the syllabic sound to specific rhythms is said to contain the wisdom as much as the meaning, um, as the semantics. So it became very important right from the start to preserve the language in an intensely specific way, right? You had to preserve how it was said down to sound and rhythm and intonation. So there was an incredibly sophisticated um, uh, system of various disciplines of prosody, of linguistics that was developed. And in 500 BC, this guy comes along, Parnini, who's a grammarian, and he constructs this grammar, uh, which, as you said, is really a set of 4,000 rules. And they're very economically tightly written so that you can print the whole thing out in under 40 pages. And it's not actually a paradigmatic grammar in the sense that you and I might be used to. You know, when you learn a new language, you're told to look, you know, look at those tables of word declensions, and you have to learn them by heart. You go down and say, you know, he taught, he he teaches, he taught, and you just learn those up. It's not that at all. So what happens is if you are trying to figure out what a word should do in the Sanskrit language, you take a verb root, and then you plug it into this system of rules, and modern computer programmers will um, understand some of this language. It's a rule set in which the rules set off other rules. Uh, One rule can call the other recursively, there are uh, systems for um, uh, for applicability, so that after one rule goes off, there is a system by which other rules cannot apply to the same verb root that you're putting through. Um, and what it, each rule does is it augments um, the verb root that you're starting with. So there's augmentation, suffixation, and the rule wor- all this the system of rules works on this and out pops at the other end a word or a sentence. So um, there's a meta-language that allows Parnini to describe the Sanskrit language itself. Uh, And so it's been described as the most complete description of a language that has ever been achieved, Um, in in the sense that all possible words of Sanskrit and all possible sentences of Sanskrit are contained in these 40 pages. It's like a little machine. It's been compared to the Turing machine. So the interesting part about this is that uh, much, much later uh, in the 18th century, um, his grammar, Parnini's grammar, gets discovered by the West and gets translated and becomes the basis of much of modern linguistics. So Ferdinand de Saussure, who is regarded as the father of uh, structural linguistics, was actually a Sanskrit professor. Uh, Leonard Bloomfield who was uh, the, the man who set the direction for much of American linguistics in the 20th century, was also a Sanskrit professor. Uh, Noam Chomsky took a lot of his ideas about uh, generative uh, linguistics 
um, and he says this very explicitly in a couple of places, from Parninian ideas. So what happens in the 50s when programmers are trying to find a way to define formal languages for the computer? Now, it's very under, uh, very necessary that when you're saying something to a computer, uh, you say it in such a regular, formalized way that it understands what you're actually saying. It it has to be able to parse your language. So you cannot change the order of words. You cannot change the syntax. In ordinary human tongues, uh, you know, we can change the order of words. I can say something with a certain intonation and you'll understand it. Well, all of that doesn't work with computers. So when uh, people were looking for ways to make formal languages, they they looked towards linguistics, um, um, linguistic science, and where they found ways of notating language, so that you could f- construct formal languages. Uh, and so the the today the most popular way for defining and generating computer languages is the Bacchus-Nor form, uh, which was created in the 1950s and it looks actually exactly like a Parninian form, so much so that uh, in the late 60s, a programmer wrote into the ACM, which is a journal uh, for a technical journal for the sciences, suggesting that it should be renamed the Parnini uh, Bacchus form because uh, Parnini was the one who invented it first. And I'll, so I'll... there's this very strange connection from from our world today, going back 2,500 years to yeah. this to this uh, absolutely brilliant act of of, uh, of thought, of, of uh, scientific construction of a language itself. Amazing. Uh, and it I should also amazing. mention <clears throat> that, that by creating this grammar, Panini, in a sense, made Sanskrit a formal language um, in that uh, there have been general trends in its history. Um, so, for instance, um, compound words became very popular to use in the second millennium, but it's remained amazingly stable. Um, if you wrote a letter today in grammatically con- uh, correct Sanskrit and you sent it back by a time machine 2,000 years, they would be able to read it. And we'll have to leave it there. There's much else in the book. You'll have to read it. Uh, synthetic biology and uh, the, the idea of Sanskrit is a very formal language but has a very active tradition of poetry. There's much else in the book. Geek Sublime is the name of the book. Vikram Chandra, the author. Thanks so much for being our guest today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And uh, join us tomorrow. We're going to talk about Canyonlands National Park. It's having a 50th uh, birthday, and we're going to talk about that on the program tomorrow. Thanks for listening today. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Waste not. Use the garbage disposal sparingly. Compost vegetable food waste instead and save gallons every time. Waste Not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org slash publicworks. Thank you for listening to Access Utah on Utah Public Radio, a service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. The time now is 10 o'clock.